Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. The defeat of the king opens the door to a second phase in the revolution, which turns out to be the intermediary phase between two civil wars. And at this point, the dual power we referred to earlier experiences a shift. Previously, up to this point, the two contending centers of power were, on the one hand, the royal, the royalist uh, based in Oxford, and the parliament backed by the city of London. Now, of course, there's a change. Charles has been removed from the chessboard, if you like, but and there are now two rival powers, a new dual power. That's to say the, the conflict begins to open up between the parliament on the one hand and the new model army on the other hand. And it's here that we find a very precise analogy with the Russian Revolution, as a matter of fact. Uh, if you think about it, uh, in the February Revolution, the mass of the workers and uh, peasants and soldiers overthrew the Tsar. But formal power, power was in the hands of the Soviets, but formal power was still held by the bourgeois provisional government, which was striving to do a deal with the monarchy. Now, here is a, a precise comparison with the English Revolution. The uh, new, new model army, as I've explained, is a power which reflects, in effect, the masses. The rank-and-file soldiers were made up of ordinary uh, workers, if you like, ordinary people, artisans, and so on. Extremely radical, and they wanted to push the revolution further. On the other hand, the officers, which became known as the grandees, including Cromwell, as a matter of fact, still had one foot in the parliament and the other in the army. This is, uh, it's also an analogy with the Russian Revolution, if you like. And they were trying to steer a, a, a middle course, and they were holding the army back, in effect. And because of that, the initiative, the initiative now passes to the counter-revolution in the form of the Presbyterian counter-revolution. If you recall our, our previous comments on it, the Presbyterians was really the party of the, the fat cats, the party of the, uh, the wealthy uh, landowners and, and capitalists and bankers. And to the degree that the fear of the king was diminished, severely diminished, almost to nothing, now divisions open up, which are class divisions, let's emphasize the point, between the independence party represented by Cromwell, you can call it a party at this stage, and the Presbyterians. And the conflict between the army and the parliament becomes increasingly, increasingly sharper. And there's a reason for this, of course. The wealthy merchants and landowners, the Presbyterian moderates, as they would call themselves, in the House of Commons, were increasingly alarmed at the composition and the religious uh, extremism, as they put it, the left-wing leanings, in effect, the revolutionary aspirations of the soldiers in the new model army, which is, in effect, as I say, it's the organization that, that, that organizes the masses. 
and takes the place therefore under contemporary conditions of the, of the yes of the Bolshevik party and the, the Soviet precisely and they wished to at all costs to clip the wings of, of the uh, radicals to muzzle them and if possible to, to crush them the war the first years of the war has come to an end and now they see, they see, begin to see not the king, but the new model army is the main enemy and the main threat to their, their class interests, which of course they're determined to crush. The Presbyterians now have a majority in the House of Commons, although of course, uh, as with the French Revolution, again, there's, there's an analogy. There's the left wing in Parliament, reflected by Cromwell and the independents, the right wing reflected by the uh, Presbyterians, and in the middle, what, what they used to call in the French Revolution, the marsh, the frogs of the marsh, a center which shifts depending on which way the wind is blowing, they can move to the left or the right. At this stage, the center is solidly supporting the right with the Presbyterians. And they now take, take, try, try to take on an offensive against the, the, the new model. They talk openly about, they complain about the army, they criticize the army, they slander the army, they complain about the cost of the army, and they openly talk about uh, cutting the army down to, down, down to size, using the usual excuse, of course, of, uh, of cost, of the need to cut costs and so on and so forth. In fact, they haven't paid the army its wages, which is a serious matter as far as the soldiers are concerned. And of course, uh, some members of parliament can see a good way of getting rid of this message. It's a smart idea. They thought it was a smart idea anyway. That is to say, to, uh, to use the phrase of Marlon Brando in the film, The Godfather, they would make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Go to Ireland. <laughs> Go to Ireland and fight the rebels. <laughs> and of course, this is, they haven't even paid the troops. They were the ship, as the soldiers would see it, they want to see them shuffle them off to some uh, godforsaken bog in Ireland to fight the rebels. Instead, they should make the point here, we'll deal with the levelers in a moment, but here for the first time the, the word leveler is, is, is heard. This is, it becomes, a, 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 it always existed, it existed before, but it was very small, a very small extreme radical revolutionary group based mainly in London and some of the other cities, but now it begins to take off. And begins to take off in the in, in, in the army. The levelers, by the way, is an interesting point most people don't know. The levelers were opposed to intervening in Ireland. They were very advanced for their time. They actually said, no, the Irish people are fighting for their rights and we've got no reason to intervene and uh, interfere with them. Above all, since we haven't established our own rights yet. And that was the idea. Let's sort out our, our own affairs. But in any case, we've got no quarrel with the Irish or the Scots. That was the levelers position, very advanced position. I might, uh, I might add. This proposal, you must, they actually made an ultimatum to the army. Either you go to Ireland, get out of the way and, and disappear to Ireland, or else we'll disband you. A direct uh, threatened to disband the army, and this of course was central to the program of what we now can refer to as the Presbyterian counter-revolution. Now of course, in physics, as you know, Every uh, reaction produces an equal and opposite reaction. For the Presbyterians, for the bourgeois elements, you know, the nascent bourgeoisie, to put it that way, things were going too, too, too far and too fast. But for the, uh, the mass of the people and for the, above all, for the radicals in the ranks of the new, new model army, 
things were going too slowly. In fact, they were going in the wrong direction altogether, and therefore, the, all the conditions existed for for a clash. From the soldiers' point of view, you can understand this. These men had given their blood for the sake of the revolution, for the sake of Parliament, actually. And they were not even paid their back wages, you can imagine that. And, and furthermore, they threatened with disbandment. The frustration and anger was growing by the day in the ranks of the army. The proposal, of the, when, when the soldiers were informed of the proposal for Parliament, the indignation just, just erupted. There were angry cries on, on all sides. One cry went up, justice, justice for the army. That was the, the, the cry that went up. And a wave of radicalization now sweeps the army, which is expressed in a rapid rise of the levelers, a rapid rise of the left wing. Now Trotsky explains in his marvelous book, uh, The History of the Russian Revolution, that in the course of the revolution, there's always a tendency of, of, of the rise and fall of parties and leaders. You see that in the English Revolution also, and in the French Revolution indeed, in which the, the, the left wing always gains at the expense of the moderates, the, the right wing, the so-called. And this is shown by the rise of, of the level, levelers, who were, of course, the most advanced uh, layer, section of the English Revolution. They had some very advanced, advanced ideas. They weren't socialists, actually. They, they never formally raised the question of private property, although I believe it's implicit in uh, many of their statements and, and manifestos and so on. But they had some very capable spokesmen. One of them we've already noted when he was a young man arrested by Charles during the 11 years tyranny. And that was uh, John Lilburn. He's the most famous of the levelers, a very uh, courageous man, very courageous. From a well-to-do well family, actually, but he became an apprentice, a cloth merchant's apprentice, I think. He then uh, entered the career of radicalism, ended up in prison because of his views under the he, he spent most of his life, I think, in prison, one way or another, both, both before and after the revolution. Courageous man, a, a good speaker and writer, uh, one of the leaders of the apprentice uprising in, in, earlier on, in, at the beginning of the revolution. So he was, he's, he's well known. Less known as a man called Richard Overton, who was a marvelous writer and publicist of incendiary pamphlets and so on. William, Wal William Walwyn was another. And yes, Henry Martin, I think I've mentioned his name before, not, not as well known as he ought to be, who was a member of parliament. And he must have been the only, me the only member of parliament at that time who was a declared Republican. Very few people at this stage actually dead before the idea of Republicanism that England could do without the monarchy. That wasn't the position, certainly of Cromwell. And then, of course, to the left of the revelers, there's a small attendance, which we might refer to, we will refer to later on, um, represented by a man, again, a talented publicist called Gerard, Gerard Winstanley, who described themselves as the true levelers. They became known historically as the diggers, and they definitely were communists, explicitly so. We'll deal with them. They will appear a bit later on in this, uh, in this discussion. But the printing press, of course, was widely used by the by, by all tenders, particularly the levelers. They produced uh, an avalanche of, of pamphlets and news sheets. Of course, an outpouring of, of speech and words is, is present in all revolutions. People who've been suppressed for years desire to speak and read and know. Naturally, 
And in the summer of 1647, the Levels actually presented the demands to Parliament. But of course, you can imagine they got short shrift from this Parliament. They soon uh, got rid of that. And when Parliament turned down their, uh, rejected the Levels' demands for, for radical reform of Parliament, actually, <laughs> you can understand why they turned it. Because the prominent in the demands was the immediate dissolution of Parliament, new elections held with a, a broader, Suffrage, well, they weren't, had no interest in, in that. And therefore, having been turned down by Parliament, the Levellers turned their attention seriously to the army. And so by the summer of 1647, this is important to understand, by the summer of 1647, the Levellers had won the support, undoubtedly, of the majority of the army, where discontent, of course, was, was running high for reasons which we've explained. Now, here's a very important point, which is not generally known. And it's unfortunate because it's a key question. Important changes were taking place inside the new model itself with the rise of the agitators. I'll explain what that word means in a moment. You see, up to, up to, this, point, the, uh, up to this point, the army had been ruled by the Council of Officers, who were mainly fairly well-to-do farmers and even uh, more than farmers. Uh, but uh, these officers have been striving to do a deal with the parliament. Although they were independents, so they were being hammered by the Presbyterians, they were struggling to avoid a conflict. They were afraid of a conflict, actually. And so the, the soldiers, realizing that the officers were not doing uh, what they wanted, they decided that this is an extraordinary new development in history, never, never been seen before, rarely seen since. The soldiers decided to elect a council elected by them and, and uh, of course, with the right of recall, the Council of Agitators, uh, two, two members being named by each uh, regiment. Each troop uh, elected two, two privates or lower officers, uh, what we call now NCOs, sergeants or corporals, not higher up officers. These were, these were rank and file, yeah, rank and file men elected as agitators. Now these were, you could say, that they were a kind of shop stewards, but I think that doesn't do justice to the role of the agitators. I would say that they're far more similar to the commissars in the Russian Red Army in the years of the Bolshevik Revolution and the Russian Civil War. And the levelers had a lot of influence among these agitators. But the agitators, of course, were supposed to lead the men into battle, inspire them with this fiery speeches from the Bible and so on. They were supposed to lead from the front. But they were also revolutionaries. The overwhelming, all, all of them, I would say, were on the extreme left wing, including levelers such as Edward Sexby, Major John uh, Wildman. Uh, the latter played a very, a very important part drawing up the declaration and aims of the agitators, as a matter of fact. And in particular, a man that I I've got a very high regard for, again, not, unfortunately, not well known, ought to be well known, because I considered him to be the best of all the, the levelers, the leveler leaders. He actually was a vice admiral. Well, he was, uh, it's a long story, but they tried to keep, Carl Crumble tried to keep him up. But um, anyway, he got to, for a short time, he was a vice admiral. Of the, of his, his father was a famous uh, admiral and, and a war hero from the previous period, but there we are. Thomas Rainsborough, remarkable man, a very courageous man, very intelligent, very advanced 
and he was an, he was he was an officer actually, not a not not, not a rank of file. He was a member of the officer. But he sincerely and honestly and enthusiastically embraced the cause of the, the lower orders and the revolution. And he played a leading role in the Putney debates, about which we're going to speak uh, later on. They were becoming increasingly advanced. Even some of them were beginning even to raise the question of doing away with the monarchy altogether. And therefore, these events in the army were being observed with horror by the, by the parliament. Power was beginning to slip out of the hands of Parliament and into the hands of the army. That's the problem. And alarmed at these developments, of course, the Presbyterians in Parliament attempted to impose their authority on the troops. They uh, stated now, uh, they voted, that any, uh, any soldier that refused to volunteer to fight in Ireland, any troop would be instantly disbanded. Now this move towards counter-revolution, that's what it was. It backfired, it blew up in their faces, it, it provoked a mood of fury among the soldiers. And they, the, the Council of the Army ordered a general assembly of all regiments to hammer out a policy that reflected their common views and interests. The program of the army, that was uh, an important departure. But within the army also, there was the beginning of, uh, the, the, the control was beginning to slip out of the hands of the officers who were independents, but they were on the left, but they were, they were a bit like left reformers, if you like. A bit like the left labor leaders, you could say. Maybe like Markov and the rest of them, all comparisons are a bit weak, of course. But control was beginning to slip out of the hands of the officers and into the hands of the most radical revolutionary element. And now the ranks were buzzing, they really were buzzing, with rumours that the king was going to be moved to London and that a new army was being raised by the parliament, a counter-revolutionary army in order to, to crush them and probably commence another civil war. Uh, these rumours were not without foundations, but the, the parliament was definitely fishing around and trying to get mercenaries to serve their purpose. These rumours, of course, aroused the absolute white fury among the, the soldiers. Understanding the threat posed by the agitators, by the way, the presidents tried to have them arrested. Denzel Hollis, I think you will remember, he used to be one of the leaders of the opposition to the king, and now he's passed over to the, he's one of the leaders now of the, he was a leader of the peace party, now he's one of the leaders of the Presbyterian counter-revolution. He, he thought that, uh, he had a simple solution, that uh, one, of, one of the agitators ought to be shot as a lesson to the rest. Now, Fairf in all this turmoil, Fairfax and Cromwell, the leaders, were, were not able or, or willing to provide effective opposition to the threat of counter-revolution. They still attempted to, to mediate between Parliament and the army. And they even announced, they even announced, believe it or not, Cromwell said on more than one occasion, he was emphatic. That if it was the will of Parliament to dissolve the new model army, he would, the army would go along with it. So he said, yes, but now dramatic events were beginning to unfold. The polarization between revolution and counter-revolution is its breaking point. And one by one, those that uh, attempted to maintain a position of neutrality, of mediation, were pushed to move either in one direction or another. That's the question. The point is reached where you're going to make up your mind. Either for the revolution or even for the counter-revolution. There wasn't any room for, for middle ground anymore. 
And finally, Cromwell himself had to decide what side he was on. And uh, being informed that the preparations were being made for his arrest, <laughs> that makes a man think, no doubt. He did think, he fled to the army. And now the die was cast for an open struggle. Now, all this time, by the way, we've forgotten about poor old King Charles. Where's he in all this? Well, the king was uh, placed in ca captivity in a place called Ho Ho Holby House in Northamptonshire, where he saw these divisions between the army and the parliament as a golden opportunity for him to intrigue with both sides. He was a complete, I mean, this portrayal of Charles uh, as a childish, innocent person is just a lot of bunkum. He was a uh, devious and a maneuver and intriguer all his life from start to finish. And he hadn't given up uh, hope, despite his position. Despite the collapse of his fortunes, he continued to intrigue and maneuver in an attempt to rebuild his position, and taking advantage of the growing division between his opponents. He believed in, uh, with good reason that the uh, the, the fear of revolution, the fear of the masses, would enable him to rally all the conservative elements around him as a bulwark against it. He wasn't mistaken in that, in that uh, assumption. And therefore, he decided to try to play a parliament against the army, against each other. And in fact, he, he did achieve a degree of success in that. He, he, he let know his, his intentions when he wrote the following. This is an interesting thing which I will quote. I am not without hope. It's amazing a man in this position should be not without hope. I am not without hope that I shall be able to draw either the Presbyterians or the Independents to side with me for extirpating one another so that I shall be really king again. Isn't that priceless? It really is a clear expression of what he was really after because he didn't say that to the army or to parliament, he let them think that he was uh, on their side, actually, in the course of his maneuvers. But then something happened which nobody expected. A surprise development. This revolution is full of surprises. One day in uh, June 1647, uh, a body of cavalry, I think 500 men, under a junior officer, what they called an NCO, he was uh, like a corporal, if you like, in the modern army, by the name of Cornet, Cornet is the name of that, like Corporal, Cornet George Joyce suddenly appears at the gates of Holby House, where the king is uh, in effect in hiding. Now, now Joyce is an is a, is a unknown figure, but he's a well, no, well known in the army. He's an agitator. He's one of these ferocious left wingers. Now, the first thing that I notice is that um, when he turned up outside the king's uh, place of residence, he gained access to the king's quarters without being challenged by the guards or with any, any uh, significant opposition. Clearly, the, the soldiers were sympathetic to his cause. This was an indication of the real state of affairs. And when Joyce realized that the person is, was that there was a Presbyterian officer in charge of Charles by the name of Colonel Greaves, and also the Scottish commissioners were there, the Presbyterian scoundrels were negotiating with Charles. They had fled. And when Joyce realized this, I think he must have taken the decision, I believe so, off his own bat. I think his instructions were, and I think Cromwell was behind it too. Never, never clarified, but I believe so. His instructions were to stop Charles being moved, to take possession of Charles, to stop the Presbyterians 
taking him to London to use him for their own purposes. But he, he saw that Graves had fled, and therefore this was a little bit awkward. And fearing that Graves would return soon with reinforcements, which is entirely possible, he decided to take action into his own hands. He strode into the king's bedroom. He insisted on, on, on raising Charles from his, uh, from his bed at half past ten at night and getting him to come with him to, to an unknown destination, promising, of course, that he would not be harmed. Of course, the king was a little bit uh, puzzled by this. And an interesting conversation, I can't resist quoting this, an interesting conversation took, Charles said, well, uh, you know, on what authority, this man is a corporal for Christ, I'm the king of England, he's a corporal. Who the hell is he to tell me where to go? The king was astonished. So he said to him, uh, he, asked for his, he asked for his authority, his permission, his commission, as he would put it, you know. Then said the king, I'm quoting here, this is, this is priceless. Then said the king, I pray, Mr. Joyce, tell me what commission you have. Good question. The coroner's answer was, here is my commission. Where, said the king. He answered, here. His, his majesty asked again, where? He answered, behind me, pointing to the soldiers that were mounted and desired his majesty that he might satisfy him. Whereupon the king smiled, you've got to say, he had a sense of humor. Whereupon the king smiled and said, it is as fair a commission and as well written as, it, as, as he had ever seen a commission written in, in his life. A company of handsome gentlemen and proper gentlemen as he had seen in a great while. <laughs> there we are. And of course he had no alternative to get on a horse and accompany Joyce to the army. Where now the king is the, a prisoner, uh, not of parliament, he's a prisoner of the army. Now at this point I think perhaps we should think, because it seems a bit strange perhaps to you, but in, uh, at this moment in time, very few people, I think Henry Martin is probably the only one, very few people could envisage England without a monarchy, without a king. I mean, it always been, the rulers of England had always been in three parts. Parliament, the House of, I beg your pardon, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and the King. The monarchy, you see. And they, they couldn't get this out of their heads. Even Cromwell had that idea. And he was trying to negotiate a, a deal with Charles, a deal that would be suitable to the army, as opposed to a deal that would be suitable to Parliament. But Charles, of course, had no intention. He played them along. He said, yes, I agree with you. He then said to the parliamentarians exactly the same, the same thing. He was playing his usual devious game, dishonest game. And in reality, he was playing for time in order to, to, to make them clash, to, to make the divisions between his enemies reach a critical point, whereby he was hoping to get back his, his, his throne. And this, of course, the, the soldiers, when they saw this, endless negotiation taking place, which is quite futile. They, begin, they began to lose all patience, and as a matter of fact, Cromwell was, was, and, and Ireton who was involved, were beginning to lose their authority. In October 1647, Wildman, the, the leveler Wildman, produced a document called The Case of the Army Truly Stated, which is a clear, clear statement of the army's grievances, called for radical reform, including the creation of a genuinely representative parliament, uh, insisting that power lay with the people, and so on and so forth. Uh, he proposed a parliament every two years, 
We don't even have that now. That MPs should be answerable to their constituents, in effect, right of recall. We certainly don't have that now. He demanded a, a, a distribution of parliamentary seats based on population in order to, to abolish the, uh, the system of rotten boroughs. Now, believe it or not, these demands, these advanced democratic demands, some of them have still not been met to this very day. But the main demand for a more representative parliament and the abolition of rotten boroughs was not achieved until the Reform Act of 1832. You see how advanced these guys were. These were revolutionary Democrats, if you like to put it that way. But of course, the army was divided. The central, the central issue, of course, as I said, was the negotiations with the king. The levelers were attempting to prevent the return of the king, whereas Ayrton and Cromwell were still striving for a deal. Now, here you have the elements of a disagreement in the army, which had to be sorted out somehow. And eventually it was uh, sorted out. Uh, in, 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 well, it wasn't sorted out, but it was, it was debated anyway. In the famous Putney debates, now this is extraordinary. When I said that the, the new model army was like the Red Army, it was like the Red Army. It was a democratic revolutionary army. And, and so they, it was decided they would debate all these uh, questions uh, in Putney. The, the army in September set up camp in, in Putney. It, and in October, they assembled in Putney, that's in, in the outskirts of, of London, to debate the disputed issues. The debate took, took place in the church of St. Mary's. And it lasted for uh, quite some time, quite some days. Series of debates, too long to deal with. Now, the extraordinary thing is, it seems amazing. You can read these debates now. Because a man called Clark, who was uh, taking them down, actually knew shorthand, believe it or not. They'd invented a kind of shorthand. I think it was originally to write down the contents of religious sermons. Anyway, he, 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 he wrote, noted on every word that was said. And, these uh, manuscripts were preserved and they were discovered and they, they were printed. The Clark manuscripts of the Putney debates, you can read them now, which I recommend that you do. I don't have time to deal with them here, but very advanced ideas were expressed in these debates, particularly by Rainsborough. Marvelous uh, things. And here, of course, the question of property were, began to be raised. Cromwell and Ireton represented the, they took up the opposite case, they argued against against the levelers, but the levelers pushed their case. They pushed their case that, uh, oh no, we, we want our rights. They, they argued that the rights of the English people had been taken away in 1066 with the Norman invasion, and that everything since then had been a, a, a continuation of this uh, Norman rule, Norman oppression, and that's, that's a fair comment. And uh, they made other points in which clearly the question of, of, of private property, Cromwell actually raised it. He said, well, no, for goodness sake, if everyone's got the same vote, see this question of revolutionary democracy, if all men have got the same rights to vote, then, then they should, maybe they should have all the same, same rights to property as well. So where does that be private property? And it was that, uh, that set the cat among the pitches. That was central. The radicals argued that there should be a new settlement as outlined in their main document, which is called the Agreement of the People, and that this should be adopted at the meeting. Now, this didn't suit uh, Cromwell at all. Uh, the levelers were arguing that neither the king nor parliament 
could be trusted to deliver liberty or justice, which is perfectly true. They also increasingly concluded or suspected that Cromwell and Ireton were placing the danger, uh, placing the revolution in danger for their compromises with the, the, the existing order, and therefore uh, they were in a head-on collision. Now, it's not possible in the time at my disposal to go into details it's, uh, in these fascinating uh, debates. Saxby, one of the main levelers among the adjectives, said the following, and I quote, we have labored to please a king, and I think that except that we were gone about to cut all our throats, we shall not please him. And we have gone to support a house, that's the House of Parliament, of course, House of Commons, which will prove rotten studs. I mean the Parliament, which consists of a company of rotten members. Now here you have precisely the conflict between, not just between the army and the king, but the army and parliament itself. Now this place, Cromwell and Ireton, who were the main protagonists of the other side in these debates, in a very awkward position. They obviously felt extremely awkward at this barrage of criticism. And Cromwell, of course, a bit slyer than, uh, than Ireton, who was more frank in these debates. Cromwell immediately begins to duck and die. It's quite uh, interesting to see his response. It reminds me very much of the response of the, of the right-wing reformists to the arguments of the Marxists uh, in the Labour Party. And he starts uh, with his usual devious uh, manner by saying, well, you know, the agreement, this agreement has got many good things in it. You've got to say that. Yeah, but, um, but on the other hand, it's a new thing. It needs to be thought about. We need time. You know, we mustn't rush into these things with the usual arguments. Oh, and by the way, there are other people also with, with equally good proposals, you know, which ought to be considered. And in any case, the problem is that there might be, he said, great difficulties in getting the nation to go along with it. Now, where have you heard those arguments before? Like it is the case with socialism put forward by the left wing many times, I think. But the levelers persisted. Uh, Wildman was backed up by Captain uh, Audley, who said, uh, if, we, if, if we tarry, if we tarry long, in other words, you better get a move on here. If we tarry long, the king will come and say who will be hanged first. So this was upper, uppermost in the mind, you know, the counter-revolution was uh, preparing an assault. This is perfectly true, as we shall see. Uh, and the levelers, of course, pressed their case quite courageously. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, prepared. Furthermore, they committed a cardinal sin from Cromwell's point of view. They weren't, uh, they weren't content to keep the, these debates, these controversial questions, within the confines of the council of the meeting. But uh, during the night of following the first debate, they actually published the proceedings in a document, in a manifesto in effect, called A Call to All the Soldiers of the Army. <laughs> we just put it in print in this video. This didn't please the officers one little bit. And on the second day, uh, which is held in a different place, the quartermaster's, quartermaster's lodgings, the next question, uh, it, it proceeded to, to, to discuss one of the most controversial issues of, 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 of all. Who should be entitled to vote in elections? Now, this I don't bear in mind that up until this time, the, that question didn't arise. The elections were carved up between the, the rich and the powerful. But of course, with the war and the revolutionary sentiment and the, the, the arousing of the masses, this became a burning issue. 
should it just be as up till now it was, only the property owners that should vote, or should there be a wider franchise? And if so, how wide? And these were very contentious issues at that time. Incidentally, these questions were not, didn't begin to be resolved until the Reform Act of 1832, a couple of hundred years later. So these were very, and some of them have not been achieved to this very day, as a matter of fact. Saxby, again, this uh, man, he was a prominent agitator. His speeches are not, not very long, not very deep, perhaps, but he was a man of action, and he, a man of few words. And he said the following, the poor and meaner of this kingdom could not be denied a vote because they have been the means of the preservation of the kingdom in the war, he means. Of course, that's right. They, fled, they shed their blood for the, for the sake of the, the kingdom, for the sake of the parliament, if it comes to that. And they could not now be denied the right of votes. But perhaps there are many, very interesting contributions made in the debate. Perhaps the most important of all, most interesting of all, is a man who I greatly admire, Thomas Rainsborough. This man who, who later was murdered, by the way, under very suspicious uh, conditions. The uh, suspicion exists that Cromwell was behind the murder. That's not proven. It's not impossible to know. He was murdered by the Cavaliers but under very suspicious circumstances. Anyway, this, in this debate, he played the most important role, and he was the most coherent and outstanding of all the level of speakers in the Putney debates. Let me just quote a very famous passage, which some of you may, may know, by Rainsborough. For really, I think that the poorest he, the poorest man, that is, that the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he, and therefore, truly, sir, I think it's clear that every man that is to, to live under a government ought first, by his own consent, to put himself under that government. And I do think that the poorest man in England is not at all bound, in a strict sense, to that government that he hath not had a voice to put himself under. Now, that puts it uh, very clearly in a, in a nutshell. It obviously threw uh, Ayrton, who was the principal case for the prosecution, who was supported by Cromwell, of course, in the debate. Cromwell was a little bit more cautious, a bit more devious, if you like. And I, 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 Ayrton immediately seized on the question of property qualifications. You see, pro property, private property, underlines, although it's not perhaps specifically stated, it underlines this whole debate. And he immediately springs to a defense of property qualifications for the vote. He insisted that only those with a permanent fixed interest, property owners, should be able to vote. And this now, here, here it brings out clearly the class question, doesn't it? It clearly brings out the class antagonism between the levelers, the rank and file of the army, and the grandees. Now, the atmosphere now is becoming quite heated. The following day, on Saturday, the 30th of October, the committee came up with a set of proposals that favored the levelers. So they were winning the debate in point of fact. And it included not a vote for universal suffrage, the manhood suffrage, that was a bit too advanced perhaps, but it, it came up with, with an idea which actually is more advanced and more revolutionary given the circumstances. It proposed, and I quote, that all free-born Englishmen or persons made free denizens of England who have served in the parliament in the late wars for the liberties of the kingdom, or, have, or who have financially assisted in the war effort, 
should be given the vote. In other words, the vote should be given to that section of society, the class, the, the revolutionary section, who fought in the wars for the sake of the revolution. This is real revolutionary stuff. This is really a proposal, similar to the Bolsheviks, by the way, who in the Soviets, you will remember, gave a, a more votes to the workers than to the peasants, for example. Here again, is the idea. No, the most advanced sections of society, the most revolutionary sections, should have the vote, full stop. Which would, uh, but the most important question to, to note here is that this was not a proposal based on property qualifications of any kind. It would, in effect, have excluded the property owners, the bulk of the property owners, who were reactionaries and royalists, and it would empower the, pe the real people, the, the most advanced elements embodied in the new modern army. Now this, of course, from the standpoint of Cromwell and I, things were going from bad to worst. An anti-monarchist sentiment now makes its uh, appearance on the, the, the on the first of November. The agitator William Allen, and we see the agitators play a key role here, uh, stated that, that their work was to, to eradicate the negative voice of the lords and the king. This is a clear Republican sentiment, which is uh, something new. Now this alarmed, seriously alarmed uh, Cromwell, who uh, on the 8th of November, launched an attack against the agreement of the people. When he returned to Putney, he was away on business for, for, for some days. And he repeated, uh, this, this, is, this is of course the heart of the matter, he repeated his claim that the widening of the franchise, giving the vote to the poor people, would, and I quote, tend very much to anarchy. Oh yes, Cromwell worked it out, and Ayrton worked it out, that if you challenge uh, if you give the poor people the vote, then this question is uh, the right to property. And that in turn leads directly to anarchy and chaos. And this was the position which they clearly held. Nevertheless, despite this, the, the agreement did have a, a commanded a majority on the General Council. And uh, this was an unacceptable position for Cromwell and I. They were now in serious difficulties. And therefore, Cromwell moved a resolution in order to get out of a difficult <coughs> situation. <coughs> in order to <clears throat> head off the, the Putney debates, the way that they were trending, he moved a resolution, quite a, again, a sly resolution, that the agitators be sent back to their regiments and that a, a general rendezvous of the army, general meeting assembly of the army, should be called where the propositions would be presented for final assent. Now, this, uh, this is a clear maneuver on the part of the Grandies and the part of Cromwell and Ireton who were seriously alarmed by the way in which the party debates were going. It clearly indicated the revolutionary mood that existed in the rank and file of the army. And therefore they decided to put a stop to these dangerous proceedings and, and if possible, prevent the further spread of level of ideas in the army. And having disposed by these means, disposed of the Putney debates, the army council then called a rendezvous of the army in Corkbush Field near Ware in the county of Hertfordshire. This was on the 15th of November, 1647, the soldiers turned up. And the first unpleasant surprise that they had was that instead of having a general rendezvous of all three regiments, the regiments were being called in one at a time, which again was, was the first maneuver that took place. A large number, the, the fears of Cromwell and I were, were fully borne out by what they saw. They must have been horrified because on the day of the rendezvous, a large number of soldiers turned up 
carrying, carrying copies of this revolutionary document, the, the agreement of the people uh, in their hands. And in the hats, they stuck pieces of paper with the slogan, England's freedom, soldiers' rights. This was attached to their hats. This is an open, an open uh, demonstration of defiance. Probably the, by the majority of the soldiers who supported the levelers. Now at this point, uh, Cromwell, seeing the, the, the danger posed, he uh, took uh, decisive action. He decided that uh, enough was enough. And therefore he took the initiative of, of galloping with his horse into the midst of the, of the mutineers in effect, of the, the soldiers, the rebel soldiers. And he grabbed copies of the agreement out of their hands and he tore the pieces of paper out of their hats and threw them on the ground. Uh, this was the, the starting point of the uh, of a counter-revolution in the army, if you like. Uh, the, the ringleaders of the mutiny were arrested. One of their number, a private by the name of Richard Arnold, was shot on the spot as an example to the rest. And with this, uh, with this decisive action of Cromwell, the, the level of mutiny, in effect, was at an end. Why didn't the soldiers react? Now, this is a key question. You see, it's impossible to understand why this revolt crumbled so quickly that day without understanding the colossal personal authority of, of, of Oliver Cromwell. Here was the man, he was their leader. He was the leader of the revolution. He was the man that led them into the battle, a courageous man that had led them so many times, risking, risking his life. And he developed a special rapport with the men, with the soldiers. They, they worshipped him and therefore, at the decisive moment, they were paralyzed into inaction. They were unable to react. You see, it's, uh, it, it was one thing to criticize uh, Cromwell and have different ideas to Cromwell, it's, or even curse him, <laughs> say what you like. But this man still uh, enjoyed a lot of authority. Another thing altogether to pull out your sword and pistol and uh, resist him by force. They, they couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to it. And therefore, the revolt crumbled. Very, very, very quickly. Uh, one of the uh, leading elements in the revolt, Private Richard Arnold, was shot on the spot as an example to the rest. And the level of mutiny was, uh, was at an end. Not the end of the revolt, of course, by the way, but um, as we shall see. But at, at this particular stage, the officers managed to get the, the upper hand. But in the middle of all this turbulence in the army, again, explosive events, were, events, unexpected events were taking place. The news reached uh, the soldiers that on the 12th of October, Charles had, had, had slipped quietly out of Hampton, Hampton Court and escaped to the Isle of Wight, where he placed himself under the protection of a Colonel uh, Robert ha Hammond. Now this, uh, the news of this, of course, was uh, electrified. It was also a very fortunate uh, occurrence for Cromwell and the army leaders because for whom, for, for them, the whole situation in the army was becoming extremely uncomfortable. Now things changed. As a result of the king's uh, escape, this, uh, this uh, uh, forced, first of all, it forced uh, uh, Cromwell and the other grandees to abandon all their attempts to conciliate pushing them at least temporarily to the left and into, the, into an uneasy alliance with the army radicals. They, they now joined forces in what became 
The second civil war, because Charles uh, didn't escape the, for no reason, he, he continued to, to maneuver and uh, intrigue. But basically, his basic intention, as he stated all along, was to regain the throne. And for that, uh, military force was, was necessary. As usual, he was playing a double game. And particularly, he was in intriguing with the Scots. On the 27th of December, 1647, he signed an agreement, secret agreement, which became known as the, the engagement with the, the Scots. And this lead, led directly to civil war, to the second civil war. He was, uh, he was uh, behind a series of royalist uprisings, which took place starting in South Wales, actually, and other parts of, of, the, of, the, company, of the country which finally broke out in, in May of 1648. Um, I suppose if again one, one was to draw an analogy with the Russian Revolution, there is an analogy, I think it's fairly exact, it would be the Kornilov counter-revolutionary offensive of the summer 1917 as a result of the, the failure of the moderate leaders of the Soviets and the Mensheviks and so on. And just as the provisional government was forced not, not, not so much the provisional government, but the Soviet leaders, rather, were forced to rely upon the Bolsheviks to fight the counter-revolution. So in the English Revolution, Parliament was compelled to base itself on the hated uh, new model army to put down the royalist uh, rebellion. Now Cromwell had moved sharply to the left. I won't spend much time on the actual uh, Second Civil War itself. It didn't last long, although while it lasted, it was quite a fairly ferocious, uh, a ferocious affair. But of course, uh, the king eventually was defeated. Was, well, once again, was placed under, this time under close arrest. And now everything had changed. The whole situation had changed. Cromwell, as I'd said, had moved closer to the army uh, radicals. He won an outstanding military victory in the Battle of Preston, which uh, smashed the Scots. And that was the end of the, the military affair. But he was beginning to draw now some serious conclusions. He was beginning to understand that uh, there was no way that they could do anything with this king. And certainly the idea, at least of a trial of the king, he was already uh, clearly inclined towards that. That it was our duty, said Cromwell, if ever the Lord brought us back again in peace, to call Charles Stuart, that man of blood, that man of blood, to, to call him to account for the blood that he has shed and the mischief that he has done to his utmost against the Lord's cause and people of this poor nation. And with these words, the ground is prepared for another decisive development of the trial and execution of Charles Stuart, King of England. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.